Hey everyone, this is Michelle Hensley with The Edge of Grace. Make sure you follow and share us so everybody that is looking for information on recovery has the opportunity to obtain that. We're going to share all of our links with all of our guests that have appeared on our Facebook page. Subscribe and follow. Just do it. It's recovery. It could save somebody's life. Share, follow, sponsor. We need sponsors. In 2011 is when the Lord put on my heart to become a foster parent. And so I was uh, on a fast with our church. Our church does a time of prayer and fasting at the beginning of every year. And I was participating in that. And as I was praying, I like leading up to this point, like if I would read a story, like even like one that's not even well-written or it's just like a little blurb in a magazine about somebody who had been adopted, like I could start crying. And, and so I, yeah, that, that was just like something like, what is happening, Mary? Like, why are you crying at like these stories? And I, I had been a writing major. So I'm like, that's not even a well-written story. Like, what are you doing? You know? And, um, but it was, it was just on my heart. And so on January 27th, 2011, I was praying in my bed and I was uh, writing some scriptures down. And as I did, I felt like the Lord gave me James 127, which is, um, and one, it's a verse I had known for a long time, but it's religion that God our Father considers pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to not become polluted by the world. That, that phrase of orphans just stood out to me big time. And I knew in that moment that, God was specifically calling me to be a foster mom. So I knew it wasn't that I was going to go to another country or even adopt from another country. I knew that it was uh, for here. And so I began reading several books about it. Um, I was single at the time. It never really crossed my mind to not be a foster mom because I was single. That was a concern. I knew it was going to be an issue um, in terms of just being a single mom is hard. Where's the money going to come from? And so, so that was that was that, but I, but I was like, whatever, like if the Lord has asked me to do this, I'm not going to not, um, just because I'm single because he knows I'm single. And so anyway, so I, I never, I never thought to not have that be part of it. I went to a conference in Tennessee. It was called Christian Alliance for Orphans. Yeah. So it was the summit for that. And I went to several of these, uh, of these sessions there and they were all just stirring my heart big time like okay Mary you can do this like what's your life for like you got to do something for other people because if not you're just you know like I I don't know like this is what God is asking you to do and so I went to this one uh, breakout session and this guy in there I think I was 24 at the time and I think this guy was 24 as well and he was sharing his story and so he and his brother had been in foster care uh, since the time he was about maybe eight or something like that. I feel like he was in foster care for 12 years. So maybe it was the time he was six. And anyhow, for that time period that he was in foster care, he had been in 12 different foster homes. So he was just describing all the times that he and his brother were moving to different places. Several of those homes were not good situations, unfortunately. You know, as a foster mom now, I'm never going to say I talk so highly of all the wonderful foster parents that I know, but, but unfortunately there have been some foster parents who haven't treated kids well. 
And so as I was listening to him share the story, and then he also talked about one home he was at that was a good experience, and someone from the audience uh, raised their hand and said, hey, how of those 12 foster homes that you were in, how many of those were Christian? And he thought for a minute, and he said, one. And it was the one lady who actually had been a good home for him and his, his brother. And when he said that, I literally could not stop the tears coming down my face. I mean, for the next like 15 minutes, I could not stop. It was, it, it was just one of these things that like this dam broke and the tears just kept coming. And it was like, oh my goodness, like I have to do this. So I'm, I'm just sitting in the hallway by myself and I was, I wrote down all these issues like, God, here's why it's going to be hard for me to do this. And one of the but the biggest reasons is because I'm a low energy person. I love being home. I love sleep. I love like I don't I love nature. Like I am not the type of person who wants to run around to all these different places and be busy every night of the week. That is not what I want in my life. And um and I run out of energy. And so um it's just kind of my personality. And so right there I was I was sitting in that hallway at the conference. I was like, "Lord, if you're asking me to do this, you're going to have to give me the energy to do it. And I just felt like he gave me Isaiah 40, where it says at the end, do you not know, have you not heard, I'm the everlasting God, you know, the creator of the ends of the earth. And it says, those who trust in the Lord, who hope in the Lord, they will soar up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not grow faint. And so it was just like, okay all right, if that's what you're asking me to do, then that's what you're going to need to do for me because you know the level of energy I have and you know that I'm going to need you to help. And so then, um, I mean, I was still only like 23 or something at the time and I was still living at my parents' house. And so I had been looking at several places to buy a house or to rent and I, place after place, it just wasn't the right place. And I was very, very uh, frugal with my money. And so I wasn't going to rent somewhere or buy somewhere that I didn't like. And, and I liked being with my parents. I really did. It was actually my sister, Sarah, and my brother, David, lived there at the same time. And they were actually more on my nerves than my parents. So my parents were great. My mom's a wonderful cook. I love hanging out with them. But my, my sister and my brother were the ones that, you know, I, I joked with that sometimes we needed a little space. So I was sharing a, a bathroom with my brother at the time. And so I would always joke that, you know, he would uh, leave messes in the bathroom, da, 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 da. and of course now I'm like, okay, Dave, that's it's all right, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and so anyhow, I I finally one day was with Dad, and we were riding to work together because he was working at the church at the time, and he there was a, a, a land for sale that was less than a mile from my parents' house, and he said, Mary, he just pointed out the window, you should just buy that land and build a house right there. And I looked at him and I was like, are you kidding me? Is that seriously something that you see me doing? Like, no, that is the last thing on my mind that I would ever want to do. Like, I just want to buy something very, very tiny, like ready to roll. Like, I don't want it to make all these decisions. Then I began praying about it and praying about it. And it was like the Lord kept um, bringing that up to me. And I, I went to this other house to look at it. And I actually liked this house. And so it was something that I could rent. And it was close to the church. And so as I went there, I, I emailed that lady like five hours after I was there. And, of course, it was already gone. And so I was like, oh, my lands. Seriously. So I prayed more about building the house. And as I did, yeah, God had to 
to confirm it to me. And so the first day I was praying and I was like, Lord, I, you know, like, I just don't know if this is actually something like that would be a good use of my money. Is this really what you want me to do? I I just kind of kept complaining to him. Like, I want to hear what you have to say to me about this. Like, I want to know what you have to say. And I hear, I heard the Lord say, Mary, if you want to hear me speak, then you need to open my word. And so I took my Bible and I opened my Bible. I don't usually just kind of like, okay, whatever I open up to, maybe this is what God is saying. But this time I did. And it was, I know it was Jeremiah 33. And in Jeremiah 33, it still blows my mind. It is uh, God telling Jeremiah to buy a field. And I was like, are you kidding me? And so he bought a field. And so then the next day I was praying, I was like, Lord, I am single and I don't know anything about buying a house. I don't know if I should have a big house like, or like, I'd be cool with a one bedroom apartment. Like what in the world? And it was like, the Lord kept bringing to my mind, no, like you need a family house. So then Isaiah 54, he took me to Isaiah 54 and it basically was like, I wish I don't have it memorized, but it said something like you who have no husband, like the Lord, your maker is your husband. And I want you to, to stretch out your tent uh, pegs. And basically it was saying like, go ahead and stretch out, like go ahead and establish yourself, establish your home, even though you don't have a husband, I'm your husband. So I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. So then the next day I, this is kind of silly, but I was dry. I was riding, I was driving somewhere that was about an hour away to meet my friend and my, I was listening to the radio and my dad called and he's like, Mary, you need to make a decision about this um, land because if you don't buy it, someone else will. And um, I was like, all right, fine. So I hung up the phone with him and I was getting ready to turn my radio back on in the car. And before I did, I was like, no, I'm just going to stop for a second and I'm going to pray. So I was like, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? Please just show me like in no uncertain terms. And I turned the radio back on and it was Taylor Swift singing they, they say she bought a bunch of land somewhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. And so the next day, I know, silly, the next day, this is the fourth day in the row, I had to do an assignment for a seminary because I was doing online seminary at the time. And it took me to Proverbs 31. And I was still like, God, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to really do this. And went to Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31, I believe verse 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. And I was like, okay, fine. Okay, fine. I like if at this point, if I do not buy this land, I am going to be disobeying God. So that's what I did. I, I went ahead and moved forward with buying the land and building the house. And it took me a very long time to, to get all of that together. But as I was building, I, I knew I ended up going with four bedrooms because I knew that I wanted to have enough space for whatever kids the Lord would bring my way. Yeah, so that that's kind of how that all got started. And then as I as I continued making preparations to be a foster mom, yeah, I, I got my foster care license November of two thousand fifteen and I didn't hear anything from the foster care agency because I'm in a very rural county. And so if I would have been probably in Marion County or another county that was more populated, then I would have got a call like that next day. But because of this, I waited six weeks, five or six weeks before I got a call. And so when I got this call, they said to me, hey, it is going to be two girls that are sisters and they are sixth and seventh grade, which actually was wrong. They had the wrong information. But at that time, because I had been waiting so long, I was like, yes, like, come on. I was so like chomping at the bit, like, yeah, like bring whoever here. And uh, really, I had been thinking that the Lord was going to bring me little kids because I uh, was so used to the preschoolers and the elementary students that I, I worked with at church and my nieces and nephews were that age at the time. 
And um, I knew that because I was working full time, it would probably be helpful. Like if I did have a kid that was in preschool or in elementary school. And so that when they said they were in sixth or seventh grade, I was just like, oh my goodness. And so then, unfortunately, I don't think the girls will mind me sharing. They already, the little stinkers were already in some legal trouble <laughs> at that point. And so I was able to ask questions about what they had been in trouble for. It was some things that, you know, I didn't necessarily have experience in. I had to really pray. And I was actually at my sister's house in, uh, in Kansas at the time. And um, they said, I, I asked them, I said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And they said, yes, you can. And so I just really began to pray. And um, I was concerned that I really didn't know anything about raising teenagers and that I didn't know anything about these particular issues that they had in their life. But as I prayed, like I wanted to do this. At one point, you know, just talking to my mom and dad, because they were at my sister's house too, and talking to my sister, I finally said to them, I want to say yes to this. And they were like, then do it. Like, if you want to do it, then do it. Say yes. And so then the next day I called and said yes. Then two days later, they came to my house. So um, that's how that got started. And the case manager who had originally called me was totally wrong. They were not in sixth and seventh grade. They were both in eighth grade. So um, it was a little bit of a difference, but um, sometimes those details can get mixed up. I don't know if she was looking at an old record or something, but they were both in eighth grade. Yeah, so I remember that first week after they had moved in with me, just just like falling asleep and just saying, God, thank you so much. Like, I'm so thankful I said yes. I'm so glad I said yes. Like, what if I had said no? Because um, it, it was just... Uh, you know, it was good to start to be a part of their lives at that point. And so I always say, like, I think the first month of parenting, like, brought out the best in me. Like, I was just, like, I loved loving them. I loved, like, nurturing them, caring for them, braiding their hair, cooking for them, all of that. And then, like, after that, I thought parenting, like, I think parenting brought out the worst in me. <laughs> you know, like, it just, like, squeezes you and spreads you apart and stretches you and everything else. The girls, they, when they first moved in, we really didn't think they were going to be with me for very long. We thought they were only going to be with me for three to six months. And so I was just so focused on how can I love them? How can I encourage them from this time period that we have together? And then about three weeks after they had moved in with us, Gabby had actually got a text from another person who uh, knew their mom. And um, that person said she got sentenced to about five years. And so that her, her release date at that point was going to be October 2020 when we looked it up. And so I remember just looking at Gabby's face uh, when she got that text message. And I, I felt like I couldn't make any promises at that point, but I, but I hated the look on her face. Um, just, yeah, that was, that was just a really sad moment of of just trying to figure out, okay, where do we go from here? Because we've only known each other for three weeks. Like, you don't fall in love with someone in three weeks to say, okay, now we're automatically family. Yeah, and actually the day that Gabby got that, I had made her stay home from school because she had threatened to beat a girl up at school. And she was already on probation uh, for beating a girl up. So I made her stay home from school. And so it was like I already realized, like, she – that this was going to be a challenge for all of us. And I know nothing about beating girls up. And so, um, like, this was this was all new to me. And so, anyhow, she never did get in trouble at the, at the school for that, so that was good. But, yeah, so then that next week, their counselor told us that they were able to go visit their mom in the county jail before um, she was going to be 
transferred to the state prison. So the counselor had told me, or the case manager had told me, hey, you don't need to go. I'm just going to have the counselor take them. And I said, okay. And so it was on a Saturday. So I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have my Saturday to myself. You know, like this is, this has been an intense few weeks here. As I did, then the girls said, no, we really want you to meet mom. And I said, oh, well, I, I mean, I can, I guess, if you want me to. But the case manager had told me no. And they said, no, we want you to meet mom, and we want mom to meet you. And so I called the case manager again, and she was like, no, you don't need to go. And so I was like, oh, okay. So then I called the um, counselor, and I said, hey, I can drive separately if you still wanted to do, like, some counseling afterwards. But I've asked them, and, like, every time I've told them that they're just going with you, they've been very adamant in telling me that they wanted me to come too. And so she said, you're fine, just ride with us. And so I rode with her, and we went to the county jail. And I honestly didn't know what to expect at that point. I didn't know if their mom would be very angry at me because, you know, just for the situation they, that we, we were in. But as I went in there, um, Gabby grabbed the phone because we had to talk th- to her through the glass. And so Gabby's talking to her, and then Gabby pulls me in, and she's like, here, Mary, meet mom. And so I got to meet her over the, the phone, through the glass, and, um, and she was sobbing, and she was just telling me, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being there for them, and thank you for loving them. And, and Anna came over, and she said, Mom, who's going to get our braces now? And, you know, Anna's very practical. And so she's just thinking, hey, we're scheduled to get our braces. Like, we're, you know. And uh, their mom points at me. <laughs> so she was like, she is, you know, she's got to do all of that for you now. And I was like, oh my, you know, like, and so we went home that day and I remember just sitting on my couch and just feeling like, oh my goodness, like this isn't just who's going to take care of the girls until summer now. Cause before it was like, we kept saying, who's going to, you can take care of them until summer. And now it was not just who's going to take care of them until summer. It's who's going to raise them for the rest of their, because their mom wasn't scheduled to get, to be released until after they finished high school. And so, uh, so it was just a very, it was, it was a whole, uh, mind shift in thinking of it. And, uh, there was another opportunity for them to go live with another relative out of state, but Gabby made it very, very clear that she wanted to stay with us, with me. And so I ended up talking to that relative and that relative was, happy to remain as a relative instead of to become, you know, parent figure in this role. And so I ended up taking them to visit their relatives uh, out of state a couple of times. And so we were able to keep in touch. I send them pictures and they wanted to remain in that extended family role instead of that parental role. So yeah, I had to learn very quickly what it was to be mom. Yeah. That was, uh, it was beautiful and wonderful. They say in foster care, I read somewhere that the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And I think that was definitely very true for me. Like it was so wonderful just to see them blossom a little bit. Um, I remember, I don't know if Gabby remembers this or not, but I just remember one day, not long after she had moved in with me, I was blow drying my hair in my bedroom and I didn't realize, but Gabby had come in my room and was sitting on my bed with a blanket wrapped around her and she was just staring at me while I was blow drying my hair and I was like oh oh you have a question no you're just watching okay you know like and so um you know just all those little things of like I said braiding their hair and helping them pick out new outfits at the mall or 
um, just getting ready for sports. Like I loved all of that. The girls ended up doing tennis and track and man, I just loved it. I, I always say, because we, the girls and I had so many arguments all the time that sports was like the easiest part of parenting for me. Cause all I had to do was sit and watch like, oh my gosh. And they were so happy I was there. That was the only time they were ever happy to see me was when I showed up at a game or at a tennis match. And like, especially if I brought them snacks. And so it was very important to Anna that I brought her snacks every time. And so I was like, you know what, if that's how she feels love, that's what I'm doing. So I always stopped and got her snacks before, uh, before I would come to those matches. But Yeah, so one of the things that was tricky for me, which I almost feel silly saying, but was that the girls had lived 13 and 14 years without me, and they had experienced 13 and 14 years of some good things in their life, but also 13 and 14 years of several very hard things, very painful things. I just remember those first several months, um, just Anna, Anna is a big talker. She loves to verbally process things. And so I just remember in those first several months hearing story after story from them of things that were difficult. And I had to grieve those things. It was like, yeah, it, it was like to to realize that this was real. This happened to them. And I had to grieve that. And as their mom, I felt their pain. You know, with your kids, you feel your kids pain. And I, I had to really to process all of that and to grieve it. And I remember one time I, um, the following year, I took them to visit their mom in prison. And sometimes when we went, she was able to have um, family preservation visits where I could drop the girls off. And then I would go for two hours and eat and read a book or something. <laughs> and then I'd come back. Um, but when I would come back, I... We'd, I'd stand in line with all the other guardians who were picking up their their kids who were visiting their moms in prison. And while I was standing in line, there was this one little boy who was probably the littlest one. Gabby and Anna were probably the older ones in the group. And so they had to, uh, the, they had, I think they always went to the gym for these meetings. And then like, you know how the prisons are, but like, there's only like one or two staff members who are going to watch like walk like 30 kids back, you know, from the gym. And so Gabby and Anna would often help with the little kids and make sure that they got back to where uh, they needed to go because a lot of them were littler instead of big. But I remember uh, that one day, actually, I could hear the little boy getting ripped away from his mom. He was probably only two or three and him screaming for his mama and just sobbing and just wanting his mom. And I was standing in line there and I could barely hold it together. I was like, don't cry. The girls will be so mad at you right now if you cry. Like, you cannot cry. But, like, I I was like, okay, just think about anything else, anything else. But I'm standing in line there watching this little boy come back, kicking and screaming, screaming for his mama. I was like, this is too sad. This is too sad. This is too sad. This is too sad. And so I, I like, had to not, like, cry. And when, when the girls walked back to the car with me and I said something to them, like, girls, I'm trying really hard not to cry, but I just saw that little boy and heard him screaming for his mama and they were like, Mary, no, you cannot cry over that. You think that's sad? Oh, my gosh. Da, 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 da. And so they really, uh, they were hardcore, like, do not cry for what we've been through. Da, 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 da. You think that's bad? That's not bad. Da, da, da. And um, they are such tough little cookies. And I'm like, no, I will cry. I will grieve for this. This is sad. Like, 
Yeah. And so I, I had to, I had to grieve all of those things. And so, you know, what I say too, is every teenager, um, struggles with their mom, um, I think. And, um, every teenager doesn't want to follow the rules. Um, or it's very rare that you have one who is a great rule follower. And, um, so that was the case for us. And it's especially hard. I've done a lot of research about adoption and it's especially hard for adopted kids to, uh, to connect and attach to their, or their, um, adoptive mother because they spent nine months in their biological mother's womb and they spent all those years with their mother, their biological mother, uh, whatever that may have looked like. And so for you to come in, it is against facts that, that you did not birth them. Like it is, it is facts that you did not birth them. And so, um, there were certainly several, times where when Anna wanted to do something or when Gabby wanted to do something and I said no I mean they would scream at me you can't tell me what to do you did not give birth to me you are not my mom da, 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 da. Um, there was one mother's day where one of them wanted to go to a friend's house and I was like no you can't spend the night there tonight and they're like why you're not even my real mom da, 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 da. and I'm like trying not to cry in the car you know and like you know the first couple of times or the first like 20 times you hear that it hurts and then after that you're like okay what else you got because I'm still here, sister, you know, but anyhow, and so, and so one of the things that if people knew me, they loved me, you know, outside of things, and so they didn't realize everything that Gabby and Anna were bringing to the table, and all the things that they were working through, and that I actually am not the easiest person to live with, it's hard to live with anybody, and so there were challenges for them, you know, to, to deal with, and and how to live with me too, and, and just their loyalty to their mother, and so, I, you know, I had to tell them several times, hey, like, I know I'm not your biological mother. I love your mom. I talk to your mom more than you do sometimes. Like, I talk to her on the phone. I write letters to her. You don't even write letters to her. I write letters to her. I print off pictures and send them to her. Like, I love your mom, and I'm not trying to take her place. No one can do that. I know that. And so, you know, there was this, um, something that I saw from it was actually from The Biggest Loser um, several years ago, and it was a lady who had gone to The Biggest Loser, and before she had gone to The Biggest Loser, her um, husband and two children had died in a car accident. And so it was just this t- terribly tragic story, the sorrow in her. And um, anyway, a-, a while later, then some years later, she actually remarried. And as they were interviewing her, she said, you know, I don't compare my first husband and my second husband I am just so thankful that I've had two husbands who love me so much and that I've loved. She said, not very many people get to say that they have one who loved them, but I have two that have loved me. And I have told that story to my girls of, you know what, honey, you've got two moms who love you. Some people don't even get one. Like you just got to, like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to do anything. That's first of all, you would never let me in the first place. I'm not trying. Like, I know that you love your mama and I'm not trying to trying to do anything to take that away from you. And so you've got two moms who love you. Take it or leave it. I'm right here. Yeah, that that was a hard thing um, to work through. But we, we, we worked through that. And and one of the things that I, I, I've shared with people before is about a year and a half, a year or so after the girls moved in with me, um, I became very depressed and like, I definitely believe it was like a clinical depression. Um, and I've done some research that has said that there are actually a lot of adoptive moms experience a post-adoption of depression. Um, so similar to how some moms have postpartum depression, adoptive moms might experience that as well. 
And um, I've read research, too, that over half of adoptive moms who were not already on an antidepressant before they adopted end up going on one after the adoption because the first two years, especially, of an adoption, you walk through fire. You do. And there's almost no way to avoid it. You just got to walk through it. And because it's hard for everybody involved and the kids are testing your boundaries um, to your limit. And so as I was walking through that fire, um, about a year into it, my body started to give way (laughs) quite a bit. And so I had lost a lot of weight. So at that point, I was kind of underweight. I, um, I wasn't sleeping well at all. And I didn't have an appetite. And um, so I was having all these physical symptoms as well. I had no energy. So thankfully, I worked Sunday through Thursday at the church. So I had Fridays off and the girls still had school on Fridays. And so thankfully on Fridays, um, if I didn't have any other appointment or anything, I would take them to school and I'd go home and I'd lay in bed all day. And then at three o'clock, I would get up because they would get home from um, the bus on, around 3.30. I, at one point, I thought all moms were that tired, that they had to sleep a whole day once a week. <laughs> and then uh, a few people kept telling me, no, Mary, that's not normal. I was like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but I don't think I can survive without it. And then I started realizing that I had a little, um, a little, a small love seat in my office. And I started realizing that I couldn't make it through the day unless I would take little small breaks uh, and curl up on my love seat, set my timer for 15 minutes, and close my eyes. And so I would have to do that once or twice a day, every day. I didn't really tell people because I felt like they probably thought I was being lazy, but it was really a method of survival. And so, but again, I didn't, I didn't really know how to explain it to people because, um, yeah, I, I didn't know. And so in my in my family background in my mom's side of the family there's a lot of folks who have depression a lot of my relatives have depression and so that they have needed medication for one of my sisters is um, definitely somebody who is an advocate for um, making sure you treat your depression with with medication and with a therapist and with doctors and so I I honestly, because I was still functioning, I was still getting to work every day. If the girls needed to go to a ball game, I went to a ball game. We went to lots of basketball games, so that was so fun. That was that was I that was perfect because here's the thing: I could go to the ball game. It was cheap, right? We got season passes, so it didn't even cost me anything. Uh, the girls would go sit with their friends. I would go sit with my sister or my parents, and I could see them. And so it was like it just it was a perfect thing. I didn't have to hear them yelling at me for three hours. But I could see them to make sure they weren't getting any trouble. <laughs> so festival games were perfect during that time. But um, so I was still going to all of those things. So I didn't think that I was depressed at the time. But but looking back now, it was like any time I had a moment to myself, I would rest. So that uh, continued to to progress. And at one point, I started really daydreaming about, well, what if I got in a coma? What if I got in a car accident and I could just be in a coma for a very long time? I was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds so and then it was like, okay, no, what if you did actually die in a car accident? Okay. Like, in my mind, like, that was starting to sound really, really good to me. And then uh, it progressed to what are the ways I could, I could kill myself. And there was this thought that came into my head uh, almost every minute of every day for about four months that I wanted to kill myself. And um, I knew that thought wasn't from God. I know that, you know, Jesus brings life. And so I knew that thought was straight from the pit of hell. I knew that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And so he wanted me to think those thoughts. I had never thought those thoughts before, but I was at such a low place that um, I didn't know how I could keep going. And so it wasn't that I didn't still love God. I loved God very, very much. I was still worshiping God. I was still serving God. I loved him very much. It wasn't that I still didn't love other people in my family. I loved everyone in my family very much. I loved my girls with more than I could ever explain. Like, I loved them to pieces. I just didn't know how I could keep functioning at where I was functioning. So I did go to the doctor, and he did put me on some medicine, but unfortunately it didn't help. And so I thought that, okay, well, what I have doesn't need medicine then. If this one's not helping, then it's not helping, you know. And so, but I kept praying, and I kept, um, you know, seeking wisdom. I did start going to a counselor and talking through things. And I remember she, uh, we were talking about some things with, with my girls and parenting, and she asked me, she said, okay, she gave me kind of a list of things to do. Do you think you can do these things? And I looked up at her and I said, the best version of me could do these things, but I am not the best version of myself right now. So no, this seems very unattainable to me. And she said, okay, that's okay. You know, start with where you're at. But I just remember feeling so broken and feeling so like, no, I can't do that right now. I have no strength to do any of that. And so I don't know how to explain it, but the Lord did lift me up out of that pit. Uh, Gabby and I actually started getting along better. And so that was just like, it, it just lowered the number of arguments we were having all the time. And that just, that little bit helped. (laughs) And so, um, that, that started getting better and we still had a lot of traumatic things happening. In fact, during that fall, right after that had happened, um, there was an incident where Anna and I were, Anna had ran away from the night. I couldn't find her. I had called the police and uh, we're on the street <laughs> and uh, the police officers are there. And I'm, Anna says something disrespectful to me and I just lash out at her and I yell at her on the street and the police officer yanks me away. And I remember looking at the police officer and I said, I really am a nice person. And, um, and I just, I, it was so frustrating because it was like, what is happening? Why are we like this? And just the other day, I almost started tearing up the thinking all the police officers and all the probation officers who've worked with me and Anna over the last couple of years, like, I just want them to know, guess what? I took her to every appointment when she was pregnant. And guess what? I walked in with her when she was having that baby that day. And I was with her in the hospital when she had that baby. And, like, we are still close today. Like, I wanted all those those police officers and those probation officers to know, like, you thought I was doing the wrong thing when I was trying to get her to do this or that. Or you thought I wasn't being harsh enough with her. But I was so focused on keeping connection with her and keeping relationship with her that I was focused for the long run. And we made it somehow we did make it. And so, yeah, all those things were kind of tricky, but yeah. Um, so then in 2019, we found out that my brother was going to need heart surgery. He was born with a birth defect. So, so yeah. So right around the time that actually one month after, uh, Gabby and Anna moved in with me is when dad stepped aside from the church to begin the Hope Center. So when he and Dave started working together and they had this dream to, be a place that could help, that could bring hope to people in really des- desperate situations. And as they begin to research, they realize that um, women who have been survivors of human trafficking 
uh, they really need more more places in, in the U.S. to be able to house them and to be able to treat them and give them holistic care that's longer than just 30 days, you know, something that's a long-term care. And so they began doing research, they began networking, and uh, the Lord led them to uh, a campus that is on the very east point of Marion County and as soon as they saw that campus, they stopped looking at other places and they started praying that God would give them that campus. And so fast forward about six or seven months and they signed on a lease agreement with uh, the organization that owned that campus and they moved in and just started from there, started getting the building ready to become the Hope Center. And so Dad and Dave, I mean, I think it was like 100 miles an hour. Again, that was right when my uh, depression was really bad and right when I was in the thick of things with Gabby and Anna and just my own mental health. And um, so I actually wasn't at the Hope Center very much. Um, I heard all the stories at Sunday dinners um, because my sisters were there um, and my parents, but I, and I did actually get to meet a few people at my parents' house before I got to meet them at the Hope Center. But because I was uh, overwhelmed with my own life, I didn't start on anything in those early days. But the Lord was certainly teaching me about trauma. He was teaching me about uh, the trauma my girls had been through, the trauma their mama had been through, and the trauma that I had been through, through all of that. So he was giving me an education uh, to prepare me for that one day. But then as, yeah, as they started, they were able to begin taking in residence fall of 2017. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind ever since. It's con- completely grown exponentially with um, so many outreach ministries as well as residential ministries residing there. David had told Dad when Dad was getting ready to step aside from the church that he wanted to help him in ministry, do what he was going to do. And that was such a joy to my dad and to my parents um, because Dad needed a partner. And he and Dave loved being together. They loved joking together. And they loved dreaming together. They loved praying together. And so... Um, they, they were, yeah, they were just excited to be in this together. And um, in the fall of 2018, Dave uh, started having heart palpitations, and he went to the doctor and got it checked out and found out that he had a, a problem with his aortic valve. And so a little time went by, a couple months, and they finally said that he was going to need to have surgery for it. And so he, you know, he was scheduled for surgery, and we were all nervous about it, but Obviously, people have these surgeries all the time, and so life was still moving forward, and we were just trying to, you know, focus on everything, and uh, David actually called me the night before he had surgery, and uh, he, he just talked with me and Gabby and Anna, and um, we were in the car, and we had just c- left from one of their um, tennis matches, and we were in the Taco Bell drive through and uh, Shelbyville, and he was like, oh, I've been there multiple times, so I, you know, like, I remember that drive through very well. Just, just talking with us, and you know, he did tell me it's it's genetic, Mary. You need to have it checked out. I'm like, Ugh, I could care less what I have. You know, I just cared about him. But yeah, he called us the night before his surgery, and we told him we loved him and everything. And I was I was at the hospital the day of his surgery, and it went well. And uh, you know, the doctor said it went well. And unfortunately, two weeks later, he died in his sleep. And so. That just was the most devastating day for all of us. Uh, Dave is the baby of the family. Like I said, like there's not a, a childhood memory that I have that he's not in. Um, and so it's just, it's a, it's a huge, huge um, mind shift to think about him not being here. It's, it's just a huge thing. Um, he was only 28. And so um, 
after he had passed and after the funeral and everything, um, I began really sinking into a depression again. And yeah, I mean, I didn't care about anything, honestly. Like I didn't, I still loved Jesus. I still trusted Jesus. I um, didn't understand why he had let Dave die, but I, um, I was so thankful for the gift of eternal life and really was excited to learn more about heaven. And, um, but in the midst of all of that, I'm very thankful that my, my church where I was working at the time let me have a lot of time off. They ended up letting me have probably about six or seven weeks off. Um, I mean, I did go into work a little bit during that time, but um, nothing regularly. And yeah, so I spent a lot of time on the couch, spent a lot of time crying, um, spent a lot of time, a lot of time at my parents' house. Um, we'd eat dinner together every night. Even three or four months after Dave had passed, um, all of us were still going over and having dinner at my parents' house um, together. My sister Sherry, who lives out of state, she ended up staying for over a month with us just, you know, to, to be with us and everything. And I ended up going to my doctor again. One of my friends, actually, who worked at the church told me, Mary, I think you need to go again and see if you can try some different medicine and so I did, and this time um, he put me on something different because a lot of times when people have are on an antidepressant, they get a medicine that helps with their anxiety. I actually didn't have anxiety. All I had was just like ex- extreme low energy, extreme depression, didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to do things. And so I really wasn't anxious. I was, And so a lot, sometimes antidepressants calm people down, and I was like, I do not need anything to calm me down. I need something to, get, you know... So he put me on um, Cymbalta, which has um, a stimulant in it, which actually is supposed to help me get get a little uh, pick-me-up. And so um, that really did help me quite a bit. And once I got on uh, the medicine, it was only about a couple weeks later that I was able to tell my dad, yes, that I would come work at the Hope Center because he had asked me that about two months earlier. And I was just like, Dad, I can't think straight. I can't. Like, I'm not in a position to come and do any, like, meet anyone new right now. Like, they don't want to see me crying all the time. And, and so, so I, you know, I had told him multiple times, like, I can't, and I loved everybody that I worked with at church. Like, I can't lose something else right now. And um, then after I was on the medicine, it was like, it gave me enough of a boost to be able to say yes to that and to make a plan towards coming to work at the Hope Center. And so I was able to, um, come in and um, have David's office now and still have a lot of his stuff. Keep all anything that I find that's in his handwriting I keep. And, yeah, just trying to, to carry on the good work and, to, yeah, to make him proud.